Well, thank you for the worship. Doug, uh, the song, The Rich Young Ruler at the very beginning, I did not know that that existed. How did you find it? Well, anyway, uh, I need to check that song out. I forgot one important thing uh, earlier in the worship, and that is to introduce you to my lovely wife, Debbie, who sits there, but she'll stand just for a moment. I cannot tell you uh, what a privilege it is to be married to her and uh, to benefit from all that she has invested in my life over the last 45, over 45 years. So uh, we celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary. And uh, without a doubt, they, they've been the best 45 plus years of my life. So I, can't, I don't want to speak for her at this point. But uh, as you can tell, when you have a narcissist come and preach, that there can be all kinds of stories. So we're, not gonna, we're, gonna, we're just going to bypass those stories and get to the passage. But it really is a privilege for me to come and to be a part of the worship. And I would like to uh, direct your attention to the passage which is in Mark chapter 10. Uh, I, would, I will tell you that this is one of those passages that probably, like many of you who have known Christ for a long time, you've read it, you've been in Bible studies, you've heard sermons. This might be your hundredth sermon. I don't know that you've heard on this particular portion of the Gospel of Mark. It is one of those passages, and I think this is how the whole Bible is, that you're constantly learning new dynamics, new um, thoughts about it uh, in terms of what God is communicating to us. So as you listen to the passage, in fact, let me just say this. Uh, sometimes, instead of reading the passage with the pastor, whoever's uh, reading it, that you just think about it. You listen as opposed to read it. And as you listen to it, ask yourself some fundamental questions like, what, what are you hearing what is God saying to you specifically in this context? Um, what does it look like for you to live out this passage? In other words, use it as an opportunity to, to think about it as opposed to just simply reading that which you're hearing. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And at this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a man to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
And the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother, father or children or fields from me, for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and along with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. It's appropriate that we would pray, please, with me. Father, thank you for giving us your word and for this opportunity this morning to put everything else aside within our lives and to be attentive to you and our worship, our praise, our adoration, our confession, our petitions, singing, and now listening to your word. May your Holy Spirit work in all of our lives. Keep me from somehow getting in the way. And may all of this Bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. From what we have just read, this story that is a true story, right? It's not a parable. We might use the term about the inquisitor. We may refer to him as someone who is rather desperate. And Mark provides for us this overview of what took place on that particular day. We get so to speak, the camera's eye in regards to this man. He's running. He's on his knees. He's, he's asking Jesus this very critical question, and Jesus responds. Eventually, he leaves. It's, it's a rather sad picture, isn't it? A man who has come to Jesus with the hope that somehow his burning question in life is going to be addressed and it's all going to be resolved and everything is going to be great, doesn't leave happy, celebrating. Instead, he leaves sad because he had great wealth. So maybe one way we might refer to him as is the inquisitor, the man who had this burning, burning question. I believe that when we look at this particular passage, again, a passage that most of us are familiar with and we've read and heard, read many, many times, is fundamentally a picture of what I will refer to this morning as impossible repentance. And you'll see that at the latter portion of the passage, the disciples are a bit confused in terms of what has happened and what Jesus just said. And instead of of really all being in sync with it, they're, they're really not. And Jesus speaks about this whole dynamic of that which is impossible, but that which is possible, and all things are possible with God. But at that moment, for this man, the burning question that was constantly stirring within his soul was not resolved. And so he goes away sad. He goes away sad because for him, at this time in his life, and we don't know the rest of the story, right? We just know what Mark has given to us. 
But at this point in his life, repentance, that is changing the way in which he thinks and the direction in his life, was impossible. And so this morning, what I would like to do is to go through some of the details of what this impossible repentance looks like. And before I do, let me say this. I don't think it's a good idea homiletically in regards to putting together a sermon to do it in such a way that takes the passage in a negative light, right? Like, so talking about impossible repentance doesn't sound very attractive to me. I want to hear about possible repentance. But I think sometimes it's helpful for us if we, if we just take it for what it is and look at some of the details. So what, what, what are we talking about here when we speak about impossible repentance? Well, the first point is a really simple point. And as I mentioned earlier in the service, the book in which uh, we're, we're talking about, this book called Love and Power, is based on these three points, this particular passage. And the first point, as I said, is really simple, and you shouldn't have any problem memorizing it. It's the word I. The first point is I. When we talk about impossible repentance, we're talking about I, the word I, that is me. Now you say, well, okay, sounds interesting. Maybe, you know, there's something here. It's not a large word, is it? In fact, even I can spell it, right? I don't think I've ever misspelled that particular word, I. I don't know, there may be an exception, I don't know. I, I was never very good at spelling. Debbie can tell you that. She is my, uh, hey, Google, how do you spell so-and-so, right? Uh, but the word I, even though it's a small word, it's a really large word. It's, it's incredibly big. So if you look at the beginning of the passage, he simply says, What? As he comes to Jesus, again, he's on his knees, and he's saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's been a lot written about narcissism. What characterizes a narcissist? Now, I understand that there is a very technical definition of, of a psychological condition called narcissism. I'm not, I'm not implying that that would apply to you or, or to me, but there are aspects of narcissism that do apply to all of us, and I think certainly would have applied to this man. And they, and they say that there's like five different ones. I won't go through all the points, but, but, the, but the first one is like, you know, they're not people who, who take criticism very well. They don't listen very well. They're not empathetic. Uh, they don't like to be mentored. So maybe the fact that this guy is even asking a question says that he's not a true narcissist. But then let's look at the rest of the picture from what we're told here in Mark and the parallel passages. We're told that he is a very wealthy individual. In his day, he was known for being wealthy. Clearly, no one would, no one would take issue with the fact that he's wealthy. What would it mean for someone to walk into a congregation like this or some other part of life and, and to be recognized as truly wealthy? Immediately, if I asked you to list like the most, the wealthiest people in the world, in the United States, or pretty much it's going to be the United States, but who might they be? You, do you want me to list them? You know, people like Warren Buffett, right? But he's kind of 
he's, he's, I think he's even older than me. So he was really old, right? So he wouldn't be considered a rich, young ruler, young man. Uh, we'd have to go to people like the owners of Facebook or what have you. And if you think about their lifestyle, right, the camera is always on them. Anything that they say, people are, are repeating it, and it's being repeated over and over again. And the news, and all the news stations are telling the world what these people say. And when they travel, I'm telling you now, they're not traveling in coach. And they're not even traveling in first class. They're traveling in their own private corporate-type jets, and they drive the most expensive cars, and they wear really nice suits. Uh, I, I learned recently that a really nice suit that would be owned by someone who's truly wealthy would be made in Italy, and it would be worth like $22,000. Can I can't imagine wearing a $22,000 suit. But people who are truly wealthy today, these are all the things that would characterize them, right? That's this man here. He's on his knees in the dust, in the dirt, but he just drove up in a Tesla, and it was driven by somebody else, and that was the car that he, that he took from the airport. And the list, you know what I mean, the list goes on. The guy has an enormous amount of... And so you think about all this, and the fact that now he's on his knees, and he's in front of Jesus, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So let me ask you this, and again, I won't go through, I won't bore you with details in terms of what truly wealthy people are characterized by, but let's understand this. As he comes to Jesus and he asks the question, we're kind of enamored by that, I think. Hey, he's coming to Jesus. That's a good thing. I mean, he could have been going somewhere else, right? But he's coming to Jesus. But as he comes to Jesus, what's the bigger figure in his life? Jesus are the word I, right? The fact that he says, what must I do, speaks really loud. It's almost like, I'm going to use the term, like the way we go about life in certain areas of our day-to-day -day operation, where we do like to use Google. And, you know, maybe it's just to help us spell so we say, hey, Google, you know, how do you spell narcissism? Or, hey, Google, whatever. Or, for example, during the, the, uh, part, the partial shutdown of the government back in the winter, I had a friend who told me that, that one of the guys that he worked with didn't have anything to do during the shutdown, and he needed some money. So what he would do is he would hire himself out to people in D.C. To, to do things like, you know, fix a toilet or a faucet or a door. But he didn't, but he wasn't a plumber and he wasn't a carpenter. So what he would do is he would go on this one website and, and uh, he would farm himself out. So someone would hire him to come the next day and fix the door or the toilet. And then the night before, he would go on YouTube or Google and he would punch in, how do you fix the toilet or how do you replace a door or whatever? And he would study it. He was a good student. And then the next day, he would show up at your door with some tools, and he would say, I'm here to fix your toilet, right? And he apparently did this quite a bit, and he was fairly successful. I think that's what this guy was like. Jesus, to him, is like Google. Hey, Google, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now think about that. Okay, it sounds, it sounds pretty good. What must I do? To, you know, but actually, the word I is the biggest word in this whole passage, in a sense, as far as this man's concerned. Because I can do it. I just need some help. Now let's just pause for a moment and ask the question, do you ever use Jesus as Google? Just help me do these things. Now I want you to contrast this YouTube, Google view of Jesus as I believe this rich young ruler was demonstrating here to that which you might see later in the same passage and other portions of Mark. In fact, I'll just take, I'll just take the one because I think it illustrates it very well. If you, if you flip through, if you scroll through the rest of this chapter, not even, the, not even the book, chapter 10, and you come to the end, you're going to see that there was an account of another man, another occasion where someone was in a conversation, in a sense, with Jesus. The man is referred to as blind Bartimaeus. He hears, because he cannot see, he hears Jesus is coming or is present. Someone told him this. And when Jesus is close enough, he yells out to Christ. Does he say, Jesus, show me what I must do in order to be healed of my blindness? He doesn't. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I have nothing to offer. Absolutely nothing to offer. Have mercy on me. When was the last time you went to Jesus and simply said, Lord, I have nothing to offer. Please, have mercy on me. Do you see the contrast? And so I believe that as you think about what it means to experience impossible repentance, impossible repentance comes about when we're saying to God, show me what I must do. And again, it's not, nothing wrong with asking God to show you the way, etc., and to show you what you must be doing. But at the heart of it, there is a huge difference between the person who is in essence so wealthy, so popular, so much in control, that you're just looking for a little bit of help, as opposed to the blind Bartimaeus that says, God have mercy on me. What is it like to call, to holler, cry for help? Just less than two weeks ago, Debbie woke me up. It was the middle of the night. She had heard some voices outside. And we live in the heart of D.C. We live in a row house about two miles north of the White House. It's not unusual to hear people at night, in the middle of the night, coming back from the bars and the clubs and other kinds of things. And sometimes they don't realize that they're just kind of loud. And across the street from us is an apartment building. But she said, hey, you need to call 911. And so I'm trying to wake up, and I'm calling 911, and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to say when the person comes across. And she said, no, there's something going on outside, and, and we need to call 911. And so before I could finish calling 911, Debbie 
was dressed and she was out the front door. And as she, as she leaves our house and she's going down our steps, she sees that next to my car, which was across the street, was a man lying motionless on the ground. And there was a lady next to this man who was lying there bleeding. And Debbie comes up to the man. And he sees, she sees that he's, he's bleeding profusely and that he's hardly uh, conscious. And so she checks his pulse and she finds out that he is, uh, he is somewhat breathing and he does have a heart rate. Of course, in the process, we're calling uh, 911 with the uh, understanding a little bit more of what's happening. But as Debbie is going to the scene, so to speak, and I'm trying to get myself dressed and, and together, I'm hearing the cry of this lady. And she was, she was yelling so loud that a couple blocks away, people told me later on that they heard her yelling. And they also called 911. And here next to this lady is like a four-year-old boy. So this is like 3 o'clock in the morning. And you've got this man who is un basically unconscious on the, on the uh, road, bleeding, and this four-year-old boy and this woman hollering. Because to her, she had no other option. She wasn't, she wasn't asking someone to come and, and just show me what to do. She was crying for help. And I don't believe we can ever understand the gospel until we get to the point in our lives where we recognize that we have absolutely nothing to offer in regards to our personal situations, in terms of, in, in regards to our family circumstances, in terms of our, our future, or maybe the past that has really haunted us, or whatever it is. There needs to be that same kind of desperation where we're like the blind Bartimaeus or like this woman, crying for help, because we have no other options. Now, that, that, that was a very long first point. The second point will be shorter, and the third point will be even less time. Secondly, if we're to understand impossible repentance, we need to realize that we're blind. So blind Bartimaeus understood what it meant to be blind. He understood the fact that if he was standing on, at an edge that he wasn't going to see, that if he took another step, he would fall. He wasn't going to see something coming that could be of, of danger to him. He just simply couldn't see. This man, this rich young ruler, this inquisitor, was incredibly blind. And he was blind in a number of ways. First of all, he was blind to the fact that he was standing in the presence of the living God. And he couldn't see. Now imagine that. The truth is, is that we see so many things, we experience so much within the course of a day and a week where God is, is clearly present. We're just, just driving here this morning from Edmond. Debbie and I were looking, and it's very different to look at the sky here compared to downtown Washington, D.C., where here, you know, you have this beautiful panorama of clouds and and landscape, and it's just, it's wonderful to see it. And the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Do you see, do you see the presence of God in every aspect of your life? This man, this rich young ruler, did not. And I believe, all, even for us as Christians, 
who have been regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit often just don't see it, maybe because we're too busy or maybe because there's this too big of an eye kind of going on within our lives. But this man did not see it. Secondly, what he didn't see was his own sin. Jesus asked him, well, actually, he begins by saying, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. The point being, you are now standing in the presence of the living God, and you're treating me like I'm, I'm kind of an everyday preacher. But you don't see it. And, he, and nor does Jesus make a big point of it at that, at that stage. So he doesn't see God, and he doesn't see his own sin. But let's just look at that for another moment. What does it mean for him not to see his own sin? So as Jesus points out the fact that he doesn't see God, and then he asks him the question in regards to the, to the law, the moral law. And if you'll notice, where is Jesus pulling from in the context of the Ten Commandments? The first part or the last part? He's pulling from the last part. He's asking him about the law relative to our relationship to one another, stealing, adultery, uh, coveting, lying. Now, what does the man say in response? Think about this. He says, I've never, I've never disobeyed any of those commandments since I was a boy. If you were on a coffee date with someone, and in the process of that coffee date, they were communicating with you the fact that no, they've never sinned. Would you go on another coffee date with them? I don't know. Maybe you would, just to kind of see what, you know, the next chapter looks like. But you would say to yourself, this man is not connected with reality. This gal is not connected with reality. They don't see their sin. And so if we understand what it means to experience impossible repentance and what real blindness looks like, not only do we not see God, not only do we not see our own sin, but we certainly don't see the consequences of it. And that's really sad. And this is a sad story, at least in terms of what we're given at this point. And now here's the third. So the first point is impossible repentance, the word I. Second point, blindness. Third, what do you think the third point is? Their point is simply love. We're told in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures. You will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. We're told that Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. And that word love, by the way, is not sort of a watered-down form of love, like, oh, he kind of liked him. It is from the word agape. It's interesting to me to think about what's taking place now, the fact that the man who says to himself, I have everything that the world could ever want, and even though this nagging question has been really bothering me in terms of where I am spiritually, now that I've been told by the guy that I'm supposed to trust in, I'm going to walk away. He's really walking away, not just from 
resolving these things in his life. He's walking away from the love of God. From the love of God that is so incredibly loud that God, who loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, whoever should trust in him, believe in him, should have everlasting life. There it is. But he's walking away from that love. And it means a number of things. It means the fact that he will remain blind in regards to what's happening within his own life and his own perspective. He's going to continue to stumble around in life because he's rejected the love of God. To reject the love of God and to be, or maybe I should put it this way, to be confronted with the love of God not only means that he's being confronted with, with the fact that he's ignoring God, but the fact that he will not see his own unrighteousness. God does not, Jesus does not allow him just to go on his merry way. And by the way, let's, you know, let me just look at, let me just tell this story a little bit from a pastoral perspective. If someone comes to me as a pastor and they're concerned about spiritual issues in their life, if they come to Ryan, for example, or one of your elders or deacons, and they have some concerns about spiritual things in their life, do you want them to leave your church, to leave your presence totally hopeless? No, you, I'll tell you what you do as a pastor. You say, no, let me just take where this person is, and I'll just continue to work with them and help them along the path. I'm not going to do something that's going to send them away sad and rejected. Why would I want to do that? But that's exactly what Jesus does. And I believe in doing so, Jesus was clearly doing the right thing, the, the loving thing. This man needed to see his sin and the weight of his sin. He needed to see the weight of the fact that there was something going on within life that he didn't have control over, and he certainly doesn't have control over now. He could have, if he wanted to, liquidated all of his assets. And notice that Jesus doesn't just simply say, liquidate all your assets. He says, liquidate your assets and give the proceeds to the poor. Set up the foundation that you need to and serve other people. So it's not just a matter of giving up something. It's a matter of serving other people. In both, in both cases, the man says no. And Jesus wants to make sure he sees the weight of that. That is the loving thing that he needed. And God, is, and God did that for him. And so he goes away, not just, oh, well, let me think about it. He goes away sad because he finally sees the weight of it. When was the last time you or I went away sad, so to speak, from having our quiet time with God or maybe in, in, in a worship like this? And we said to ourselves, you know, I know where, where God is directing me, but I struggle with that. I'm not sure I can follow that. And I think when we're in that point of tension, that's a gift, and it shows what it means, I believe, to be loved by God. Now, again, we don't know the rest of the story with this man. We don't know what eventually happens or, or doesn't happen. All I know is that Mark wants to make sure that we hear the fact that Jesus loved him and then told him these things. It's so important for us to be confronted in a gracious way with God's love. 
you know what it's like to be around someone who exemplifies love. I, I don't know what your upbringing was like. I know for me personally, my parents demonstrated an enormous amount of love. When I was uh, on the West Coast this past week, I was coming back. It's a five-hour flight. And I got on the plane about 9 o'clock in the morning. And I'm sitting there. It's always, these flights are always full. And I had that precious aisle seat. At least I like the aisle seat. And the seat next to me was, there was three seats, right? And then the seat next to me was empty. And then there was a lady at the window. And I thought, oh, this would be a nice flight, nice five-hour flight. And then they're just about ready to close the doors. And up the aisle comes a mom with a three-month-old. And now she's sitting next to me. And I'm saying to myself, this will be an interesting five-hour flight, right? Because I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be like a crying baby. Maybe the baby will throw up on me, or I don't know, whatever the case is. And I've been around children, and I, and I don't, don't get me wrong, I love children, but I'm just thinking selfishly, right? I'm a narcissist, so I know that. And so, and so I, I'm sitting there, and, and, uh, and I also know I have, I have kids, I have grandkids, and Debbie just was with our grandkids, and they had three-hour flights to places, and she's told me, you know, what it was like. And so I'm thinking about all these things, and this lady, this probably a 30-something and a three-month-old, and so she sits there, and Five hours later, the plane lands. And I'm telling you, that child, that three-month-old, never made a peep. Now, she wasn't drugged, I don't think, or anything of that nature. Like, I don't think her mom gave her Benadryl or things like that I might be tempted to do. But I sat there, and, and for that entire five, now five hours, just think about sitting where you are now for five hours, that, that whole five hours, what I saw was a mom just, you know, caring for her three-month-old, just holding, talking gently, uh, I mean, appropriately nursing the child, feeding the child. Only once did she get up and change the child, because, and then the child, for the most part, slept, and the mom, you know, kind of did other things. I mean, five hours is a long time. But what I saw was this incredible display of love and care and nurturing and everything that a mom does to a child. And that's exactly the kind of love that your Heavenly Father pours out on your life. He's going to hold you that entire five-hour trip in a plane and care for you and nurse you and change you when you need to be changed. And the list goes on and on and on. Our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father loves us and sent his only son to die for us, that we would know his grace and his love. And so my hope and my prayer for us, for myself, I'm going to start there, and for you, is that you would know the impossible repentance that Mark speaks about, but not something that doesn't apply to you, but you would know what it means to recognize how big of the word I is and how you need to deal with that. And secondly, how blind you are. And thirdly, what it's like to be confronted with God's incredible love and that you would repent. And that as you hear Christ speak to you about things in your life, 
that you would recognize that it's not you and Christ, but it's really only by His grace and by His work in your own life that you desire to change and that you are able to change. And it's all, and in a sense, it is about me. But it's not about your me, it's about Him. I, when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the living bread. I am, etc. Yes, it's about I, but it's about Christ that you would experience His grace and wonder in every area of your life as you cry out like blind Bartimaeus, Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us this time this morning. I pray that this community and this state would continue to be transformed by the gospel because of what this particular church is doing and how you're working in their lives. I pray for your richest blessing upon Ryan and Emily and their family, upon the elders of this church and the deacons and those who are responsible for women's ministry and youth ministry. And I pray, Father, that all of this, that they would experience your incredible grace and love. In Jesus' name, amen.